Hello and welcome to Exocast, this planet's premier exoplanetary podcast and the only one that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. We have an exciting show for you this month, as always. Um, Hugh is going to talk about the Gaia mission. There are lots of interesting and exotic planets and exoplanetary discoveries from the past month to divulge in the news. And we're joined for a chat in the virtual Exocast studio by Dr. Jane Birkby from the Anton Panikuk Institute for Astronomy at the University of Amsterdam. On top of all of that, Hannah and Hugh are recording today from the UK Exoplanet Community Meeting in Oxford, where I'm sure they've learned a lot of fascinating results, of which they can share nothing because of embargoes. Right. So, but before all that, let's meet the Exocasters. Uh, so my name is Andrew Rushby, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at NASA's Ames Research Center in Northern California, where I study planetary habitability. I'm Hugh Osborne. I'm a postdoc at the Laboratoire d'Astrophysique de Marseille in France, and I study transiting exoplanets and the Plato ESA mission. And I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I'm a Geoconi Fellow at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. And I characterise the atmospheres of exoplanets currently with Hubble and in the future with James Webb. So, uh, as I mentioned, Hannah and Hugh this month are at the UK Exoplanet Community Meeting, which is in Oxford. They've been there for the past couple of days. How's it been, guys? What have you learned? What can you tell us, anyway? Uh, Well, we are both expats coming back to the UK community. Um, I certainly feel that the community is so relaxed and friendly and everyone's interested in what everyone else is doing. And I absolutely love that. And I miss that so much. So I'm always happy to come back to these UK exoplanet meetings. They're a fantastic way of really getting a summary and catching up with everybody on what just amazing science is being done by the UK. I think you can really tell how, how, how much it's enjoyed by these ineligible people like us. And, and actually, there's plenty of people who have come back from, from, from a, positions abroad just for this meeting, uh, just, just coming back to see, uh, you know, make connections with people and listen to the new science that's happening in the UK and exoplanets. But yeah, it's been great so far. We're one day in out of three. Um, we had, what, detections and character- characterization today, which is basically what we normally talk about. So two more days with, what, formation and chemistry and astrobiology and some other stuff. But Yeah, and there's uh, all the cool stuff. people here. There's a few expats and then there's tons Disagree. of posters. So there's so much science to cover. We... We've got a lot to catch up with. There are, there are a lot of posters, not including mine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Hugh, what happened to your poster? <laughs> I spent so long in that poster, barely sleeping, and then I got it all the way to Oxford and left it on the bus. So Classic. Um, I'm, I'm calling every day to the depot of the buses, waiting to see when it will appear. I mean, let's, be, let's be honest, someone's going someone's gonna to hand that in. Um, Hopefully, I, I'll probably get it on Friday afternoon and there'll be one hour where I can put my poster up. But uh, that's fine. I mean, I can still talk to people about science without, you know, standing next to a poster. So that's, that's the important thing. Maybe some folks in the, in the bus depot learnt some things about exoplanet spectroscopy. We can hope, yeah. Well, not spectroscopy, come on. It's uh, a strange way of doing outreach. Yeah, <laughs> just leaving posters lying around, hoping somebody learns something. <laughs> There's method in the madness, I think. Uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> what about you, Andrew? What have you been up to? 
Not much, really. There was uh, the National Academy of Sciences Exoplanet white paper call ended last week, so there was a bit of a stress getting those in. Um, but in terms, I of- saw you wrote a poem. Yes, actually, things got a bit weird. Um, we ran into some. Uh, <laughs> we ran into some. It was know, really good. Eleventh hour LaTeX problems, as uh, as often you do. Um, we didn't read the brief properly, and turns out our formatting wasn't quite right. Um, so uh, whilst that was trying to be fixed, uh, Sean Domingo Goldman and I um, went back and forth, alternating stanzas for the uh, the classic "A Visit from Saint Nick" poem, but we changed it to "A, a Visit from Saint LaTeX." Um, Yes, things like I say, things were getting pretty weird. It was it was late. It was Friday. There was wine, um, but it was uh, it was it was fun nonetheless. We managed to do the whole poem as well. Once I think once we were halfway through, we had to commit had to commit to the whole poem, and, uh, and did so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. It was very interesting. I see. There's already some great poems coming out of the uh, out of your meeting um, that I've I've seen on the Twitter. Yeah, sphere. Dave Wilson posted one, I think. Dave posted one. But um, they were all redacted. Right, that was well, red- that's the that's the point. It's a embargoed poem. Yeah, the ah. song of the scientist. <laughs> we are sitting here, and we are joined by another expat. Dr. Jane Birkby, who is now, uh, as Andrew mentioned at the beginning, at the University of Amsterdam. And we brought her onto the show for our new guest segment to talk about some of the work that she does. So, Jane, did you bring us like a little hint that we can start with? Well, hello, everyone. And yes, I did. I want to start by asking you a question. Um, And that is, when you think of exoplanets, do you dream in transits and direct images? Or do you think about what a planet really looks like? Do you think about Jupiter and its beautiful bands and spots and storms? I imagine a watermelon orbiting a beach ball. Spherical cows for me, you know. It's a... Spherical cows. Well, so this is um, what I want to try and get across is I think uh, certainly within the science community, we, we think about, you know, these little light curves with these small dips um, or maybe these sort of wiggly radial velocity curves. And that's to, to us, that's what exoplanets are. But they're really, you know, they're not just these small pinpoints of light and they're not static. Um, planets are actually rotating and we can actually measure that rotation of the planets. Um, and it's using a relatively new technique. Um, it's one of the things that I've worked on uh, with the group in, in Leiden and we're now sort of spread out across the world. <laughs> um, and it's using a method called um, high resolution spectroscopy. Uh, so I can tell you a bit about that if you'd like. Yes, please. Uh, I don't think we've talked about high-resolution spectroscopy. So if you could give us kind of the footnotes of, one, the technique and what additions it gives you to those two other methods that you've talked about. Yeah. Um, So the sort of, uh, well, the the technique was actually proposed uh, originally when uh, just after the discovery of 51 Pig B, like the first uh, exoplanet orbiting a main sequence star. Um, And it's it's using what we call high-resolution spectroscopy. And when I say high-resolution, uh, to give you a number, that number is around 100,000. Okay, now that is in comparison to uh, things that are done from space with Hubble, which their resolution is at like 30. Okay, so we're talking orders of magnitude higher in resolution, so we're able to actually resolve the lines in the spectrum. And you're talking specifically in wavelength here, so in the colour yes. you're able to really pinpoint a very specific point of that fingerprint. Yes. And actually, fingerprinting is kind of the the method that we're going to be using here. Um, So when you go to very high resolution um, 
spectroscopy, it actually enables you not only to look um, not just at the, the little wobble of the star um, as its planet's orbiting, it sort of pulls a little bit on the star back and forth, and this is the traditional way that we find uh, planets with the radial velocity technique, or it's called the Doppler wobble technique. Um, and when you go to high resolution, you're actually able to separate out the uh, planet spectral lines from those of its host star, okay? Because your, your planet is, is right next to your star, and your star is, you know, can be a million or a billion times brighter than the planet. So it's super hard to actually see that planet. But that planet, instead of doing this tiny wobble, that it's, it's whizzing around at kilometers per second, right? Where the star is just doing a few meters per second wobble. So there's a huge velocity change during the planet's orbit. That means its spectrum moves to the blue and the red as it's orbiting. Um, and you can use that change in the, uh, the spectrum of the planet to actually disentangle it. Um, and so what you actually end up with at the end of it is a, a, a genuine spectrum of the planet. So rather than inferring the planet spectrum from how it affects the stellar light, which is how a lot of um, atmosphere characterization has been done in the past, here you actually get the, the spectrum of the planet itself. Um, and so once you have that, you can look at the shape of its spectral lines and how wide they are can tell you something about how fast the planet is rotating. So one question I've always had, this is all done from the ground. Yes. How do you get that full phase space? These planets are orbiting somewhere between, what, one day and five days or something. How do you get that full coverage when you, you've only got night after night? Yeah, so actually a lot of these observations can be done in, say, five hours, like a half night. Um, multiple papers have been done just using a half night. So you, you, know, you, you calculate when the planet's uh, day side is going to be facing towards you. So these are, these are hot Jupiters, so they're very, they're very close in and they're highly irradiated by their host star. Um, and when they're in transit, the night side of the planet is facing towards us. And then as they come around and just before they go into secondary eclipse, um, you see like the full day side and that's when we look like that's the optimal time to look either just before or just after secondary eclipse if we look during secondary eclipse we don't see the planet because it's not there <laughs> does this yeah. only work for hot jupiters then so far i guess um so we've only tested it on well we've tested it on hot jupiters but we've also been able to look at very widely separated planets so for example um beta pic b um, this is one of the earliest uh, directly imaged planets um, but it's relatively young so it's still quite hot it's still around a thousand uh, degrees um, and so with a slight modification to the technique and that takes advantage of the, the spatial separation on the sky between the star and the planet rather than using the velocity change, uh, we can use the high resolution technique again to, to draw out the <clears throat> spectral signature of the planet itself. Um, and so with that actually beta pic B was the one that we used uh, to actually measure the rotation. So it's the first time that the sort of length of a day was measured on an exoplanet and it was about eight hours. Um, so it's r rotating rapid. quite rapidly. It's faster than Jupiter. Is this the only technique where we can combine this high resolution for these non-transiting? Because the directly imaged planets alone we can get the spectra, but what about these radial velocity planets where we can't get this spectra? Is this the technique where we, we actually are able to look at their atmospheres? Yeah, so um, a lot of characterization that has been done on atmospheres has used uh, a technique that happens during transit um, and so because of that you need planets that are transiting um, and they are 
much less common than the non-transiting ones. And so with the high resolution technique, because we're looking um, at the planet's day side, uh, for the non-transiting ones, we can, we can do a, a large fraction of them. Um, we don't actually need them to be transiting in order to, to see the planet, as long as we can see some of the day side. So even if it is completely perpendicular to us, in that we are seeing the full orbit of the planet. Yeah, so that's the one case where it doesn't work. So there is certain angles see, where you can't yeah, see Yeah, so it. you need to see a, a, some velocity change in order to separate out the lines of the planet spectrum from the, its star and also our mm -hmm. Earth's uh, atmosphere, because we're observing from the ground. Um, but when it's completely face on, um, we can't do things that are very close in, but that's when we can do the widely separated ones like Beta Pic B. Um, and then that's <clears throat> the optimal time to actually look at them. Has there been any planets where you can find that they're rotating backwards compared to their star? Um, <clears throat> so we've just to really put you <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> um, so I'm actually looking at one at the moment that is rotating in the wrong direction. Um, it's, well, it's orbiting in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that from other measurements. Um, but this technique actually doesn't have the, the ability to tell which way around the planet is, is going. Um, it just knows that it's going some way at a certain speed. Is that the atmosphere that's, that's you're seeing rotate, or is that the planet itself? I guess for hot Jupiters, that's kind of like a, yeah. a philosophical question about where the atmosphere stops and where the planet begins. Yeah, so um, what we do is a, a disk averaged uh, thing. So we can't really tell you much about what's happening in different parts of the atmosphere um, on the disk. So there's no differential um, rotation? We can't see that yet. If it's something that changes that shape of the spectral lines, um, that might be something that the ELTs could ultimately do. Mm. Um, uh, just for the audience, the ELTs are these 30 yes. meter plus telescopes that are going to be built on the ground very soon or in the process of being built. Yeah. So one of the things that's really exciting about this, if we if we can see these small changes to the shape of the line, um, if you have, for example, if you imagine Jupiter and we have the great red spot, um, if you were to just stare at Jupiter for uh, 10 hours, you would see it, the full uh, rotation of the planet. And so you would see half of that time there would be the spot that was slowly moving across the surface and then it would disappear as it went round. Um, and that spot will actually change very slightly um, the uh, the sort of wavelength of light that you're receiving from different parts of the the disk of the planet, and it does it has this very tiny change um, on the on the line in the spectrum that moves over time, and so what we think we can do with the the ELTs is actually actually track that change, and so we can actually track storms passing across the surface of giant planets, and actually begin to make like the very first maps of giant planets out there in somewhere else in the galaxy. So these would be like yeah. beta pick sort of type, like directly imaged giant planets? Yeah, yeah, the directly imaged ones. Um, and finally treating a planet as a three-dimensional object. Yes, because they're spherical. <laughs> they're not disks. Absolutely amazing. I was at a, a meeting recently and the topic of sunspots came up, or star spots, when we're talking about anything else that isn't the sun, and how, um, and how star spots might affect um, constraining stellar characteristics and parameters and therefore also constraining some of the information we know about transiting planets because of that. Um, now this may not be your field and I apologize if I'm, I'm going off on a, on a tangential um, uh, aside here. Um, how much of an effect do you think that star spots and you know kind of stellar variability is going to have um, on for example anything we know about about these hot Jupiters? 
Well, I think the stellar variability in general is an issue, especially you know as we go looking for these uh, smaller Earth-like planets, we'll be targeting the sort of the cooler stars, the M dwarfs, um, and they they can be very active. They can have flares. Um, so it's actually something we're researching at the moment, like how how does it you know if a huge flare goes up on a star. How does that affect the sequence of data that we take with the high resolution technique? And does it actually have an effect? Um, or is it something that we can quite easily uh, sort of calibrate or model out um, from the process? Um, so yeah, that's sort of a, an important thing to look at um, and test on this. Cool. Thanks, yeah. And actually, we're going to be talking about um, some flaring later uh, in the news and, and how that might affect uh, some uh, our interpretation of some uh, at least planetary architectures. But in in high resolution stuff, I guess you don't really you're not looking at the star, right? You don't you don't really care about what the star's doing because you get direct photons from the planet. Yeah. So the the problem is if the star is doing things that aren't um, easily modelled in in time. So hopefully the the star just doesn't change at all over time, um, and that means that we can easily remove it and, and then put yeah. out our planet lines. Um, but for example, if Something on the on the star would be active and change uh, change its spectrum somehow. Um, that adds in an, an added complication when we're actually trying to separate the planet from the stellar lines. So correct me if I'm wrong. You use an average spectrum, which you then are able to then take away the star's effect. So you're saying if there was a temporal thing in there that was causing a difference on that average spectrum, that would mean that you've got residuals in there that you didn't know about. Yeah, it's, it's looking for things um, that change in time in a way that nothing else does. Um, and so that, that makes it difficult for us to remove it. Because um, we look for things that, um, we look at the colors and we see uh, if there are common things happening happening to them over time. And then we remove that effect. And that, has the, uh, that removes the star and most of the Earth's atmosphere. And that just leaves us with the planet spectrum in the noise. Um, and then we, we pull that out with, uh, we take a, a template of what we think the planet spectrum might look like and we sort of scan it through and we call this a cross-correlation technique but you can think of it as a sort of a fingerprinting. Right? So if you wanted to match a fingerprint you'd, you'd sort of overlay it and move it around until you got a good match and um, that's effectively what we're doing with the spectrum. I guess you're quite lucky that the, well from the look of it these, these planetary spectra they look like cones, you know they have these equally evenly spaced yeah. lines and so it sounds the nice like they're quite too. regular and they're moving at a speed that you can predict and a you know, sinusoidal pattern you can predict. So at least even if the star's doing things that are irregular, the planets seem to be very like clockwork in this sort of well, how they move. So it's possible that the planets can be varying as well. Um, we hope they I don't guess. vary on the timescales <laughs> that we're looking at, which is, you know, of order, at least for the hot Jupiters, looking at on the order of a few hours. Um, but that's something that potentially could happen. Uh, we don't have the sensitivity, I don't think so yet, to see that in the data. Yeah. Uh, it's something to think about as we go to these bigger and better telescopes um, that we may have to do that. I think it's something that we've covered previously on this podcast, but what I'd be super interested in is an eccentric planet and whether you could see if the rotation rate of the atmosphere changes over time. That would be really interesting. That would be really awesome. Yeah, because you could, you could look at it, you know, at closest approach and furthest approach. Um, but maybe you'd need a directly imaged one, so you might have to wait a long time okay. to see that. We should talk. Yeah. <laughs> you need something that's directly imaged at Aphelion and 
No. Visible yeah. in, in spectra at perihelion. Yeah. So if we do it now and then wait, and when we retire, we can do it again, and it might be long enough to like. Excellent. Yeah, I don't think that's possible. We've got our career track completely yeah. sorted. Yeah, good luck with the proposal on that one. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. And now it's time for our regularly scheduled broadcast. We have Hugh, who is going to be talking about Gaia. What is Gaia? Gaia is the god of. No, wait, hold on. That's the other one. Um, Gaia is an ETA space telescope, which launched five years ago almost now, in December 2013. Is that right? That seems, that seems too long ago. No, 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 that's right. Oh, wow. Okay. I wasn't sure if my memory was failing me there. Um, yeah, so it launched in, in December 2013, and its purpose was basically to revolutionize everything we know about our own galaxy by mapping it in extraordinary detail. Uh, which is you know, quite lofty, lofty aims, and it, and you know it still is that purpose because Gaia will continue to operate probably into the 2020s. Um, so, I mean, things we probably want to know is how does it work and how does it benefit exoplanets. So, it's um, it's a space telescope design that I don't quite understand. In fact, rather than being just one mirror and one detector, it has two 1.2 meter mirrors and two detectors each, and these mirrors point 40 or 90 degrees apart, effectively, on the sky. And the spacecraft also slowly rotates, bringing new stars into the field of view of each of those telescopes. And um, what I believe happens... I should probably have looked this up. Um, and a detector effectively follows each star across a chip, drawing a box around it, and then measures its position precisely in both the up and down direction using its position on the chip and the left-right position using the time of its transit across a primary detector. And the positions are helped by using the stars on the other telescope uh, and the de detector as a sort of comparison, as a baseline, to give you the position of both parts of... The I, don't, I still don't really know how it works. And I have, I have looked up to try and see how it works. It's just a very complicated design. Um, so the brightnesses of each source is is also accurately measured and for many sources stars galaxies supernova etc the light is lit into a slit and a spectrum is also assembled allowing us to do things like uh, measure the radial velocities of, of uh, many millions of stars many more than we've done from the ground um, as this telescope rotates it also sort of twists in an intricate dance out in, in its position at l2 and this means that it scans a new section of the sky each rotation measuring uh, most stars about 20 times per year in different orientations, building up a, a position and um, brightness measurements of each star and each galaxy in, in the entire sky. Uh, and all in all, Gaia will measure the position of uh, more than a billion stars to an unparalleled position. Um, and that, pos that position precision is the, is the real key thing for Gaia. For example, um, it will be able to tell the difference between stellar positions that would be equivalent for a human being able to tell um, you know, the two things apart um, would be equivalent to the resolution necessary to read 20-point text from geostationary orbit, so from th 30,000 kilometers above Earth. And you know, maybe for all we know, uh, and some American spy satellites do that, but I don't know. Um, it's certainly incredible, the, ability, the resolution of Gaia to detect... Uh, things very very close apart um, and in fact for nearby stars despite the fact we will see them only as point sources we will know the position of those stars to better than the radius of those stars which is kind of as seen from earth anyway which is kind of mind-blowing so we'll know does that make sense 
we'll know the position of the star and we'll see it move to less than one stellar radius. Um, which, yeah, is mind-blowing. So that precision in, posi in position will mean that Gaia can measure the shift of millions of stars due to our Earth's motion or the spacecraft's motion around the sun. Uh, so obviously it moves by slightly more than 2 AU each orbit, and that motion means that the stars appear to move against um, a background fixed sort of sky. And this effect is called parallax, and it's a direct measure of a star's distance. For example, Proxima Centauri, our closest star, moves by about one arc second each year. That's one 3,600th of a degree. Um, and a star 1,000 times further away, so 1,000 parsecs away, would move one in nearly four million um, degrees, so one milli-arc second. And this, this motion, even though it seems so small, is, is ca it, Gaia is capable of observing that motion, which is incredible. Um, so the good thing is that all our exoplanet hosting stars we know already will suddenly have much more precise distances and they'll also have um, a lot of other very precise stellar measurements because once we have an accurate distance, we can measure other properties of the star, such as their surface gravities, their densi densities, their radii, much, much better. Um, and that, that final point, so the stellar radii, is important because for a lot of transiting planets, that's how we know how big the planet is, by first studying the star and figuring out how big the star is and then studying the transit depth. So this could really improve our knowledge of, of the sizes of many planets. Um, and also we'll get precise stellar ages from Gaia. So we'll get to build up a, uh, a pattern of how exoplanets change with time that we haven't previously been able to do. And Gaia will not just characterize the stars that planets orbit, it will also find planets, in fact, thousands of them. So um, to, to think about how, you need to think about how um, planets and stars work gravitationally. So the Earth may orbit the Sun, but also to some extent the Sun orbits the Earth too. They're, they're bound in this gravitational embrace. And that leads to the Sun circling only a paltry 400 kilometers a year, and the Earth circling on a 150 million kilometer circle. So that's obviously very difficult to detect, uh, a shift of only 450 kilometers in a star that's 700 million kilometers across, or in radius. But for massive planets, that's a, this effect is more obvious. So for Jupiter, for example, the Sun actually, uh, or Jupiter pulls the motion of the Sun around on, a, on an orbit that's slightly larger than its own radius. Um, so when seen from a distance and with the precision of Gaia being able to measure the position of stars, this would look like a steady circular wobble in the position of, of, of the star. And this is the astrometry technique, and this is how Gaia is going to find all its planets. And astrometry has been actually used to confirm exoplanets before from the ground, and there's been many claims of uh, exoplanetary detections with astrometry, um, going back all the way to 1855, actually. And I think I did something on in episode three about some of these astrometric planetary claims. However, Gaia will definitely make the first definitive detections of planets using this technique. And not just a few either. Um, Gaia's going to spot up to 20,000 giant planets on orbits from one to five years, and even more if the mission's extended, up to something like 70,000 if it goes for 10 years. And that means even with all the new planet discoveries in the five years until the astrometric data release in 2023, um, Gaia planets will probably even then dwarf the number of known exoplanets um, that we'll have. So it's it's a really amazing mission. And that's not going into all of the details that, that Gaia's going to bring us about knowledge of uh, the Milky Way, knowledge of star clusters, 
um, all of these stellar discoveries that it will it will do along the way. Um, but yeah, so so Guy is really going to re revolutionise uh, astronomy. And in fact, it's it's annoying because Guy is releasing a big data release in April, and currently every time I'm looking at doing some population analysis or something at the moment, I just think there's no point. There's no point. Everything I do in the next month will be uh, outdated by the time Gaia releases all of its super precise distances and stellar parameters. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to all the planets that Gaia will discover in a few years' time. I mean, I've lost track of the number of, um, of talks in which the phrase, oh, but Gaia will give us super precise measurements for the stars, you know, when we finally get that data release. Um, it seems like a lot of exoplanet astronomers are waiting for those super precise uh, astronomical um, measurements so that we can really start reducing the error bars on those on those radiuses. Um, so yeah, this sounds like really exciting work. I don't want to wait till 2023, though. Why is it taking so long? That's what, eight years after launch to get planets out? I guess they need to build up the signal from the parallax and then remove that from, from the motion of the star. And then they need to, you know, each... I mean, if, if, if a planetary orbit is five years, you kind of need to fill in an entire orbit of the planet before you can detect it. So, um, But you did say they were going for hot Jupiters, which I think is on... No, a they're going for cold Jupiters. Ah, Did I say Jupiter. hot Jupiters? So, like, between one and five years, ah. giant planets. Um, so they won't find... So the the amount of astrometric wobble. That's that's a good yeah. I don't know what the official. It's not wobble. It's called astrometric wobble, isn't it? Maybe. But the amount of astrometric model is wobble is proportional to the distance of the planet. So hot Jupiters don't actually move their stars around as much as cold Jupiters. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're all right. You've got this. You've got the notes there. You've got the notes, but I've got to check it. with Hannah first. <laughs> Hannah knows all. You don't have to check with me. True. You were nodding. Oh. I was. You were getting some good points across there. One of the really nice things that Gaia's going to do is give us this completely separate statistical sample looking at lots of different stars. In fact, all of the stars. Um, and for a good significant portion of those stars, giving us information on any planets that are further out and massive akin to those giant planets in our solar system that correct me if i'm wrong andrew we still think are incredibly important for life on earth Very so, much so having that information is going to be absolutely amazing it's going to open a whole new avenue of planet formation scenarios and our understanding of earth and its role within giant planet solar system yeah, I really think, okay, I'm putting my uh, sceptic hat on here. I, I think a, a solar system that where we detect a giant planet at 4 AU or 5 AU is closer to the solar system than something like TRAPPIST-1. Oh, yeah, 100%. Because TRAPPIST-1 is... That's not is, a sceptic's hat, that's a realist hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, or, or even closer to maybe what I would think of as a habitable system. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I feel like things that are around M dwarfs maybe aren't aren't as interesting as as people say. I'd certainly be interested to hear what our listeners think on that because I think we are all in agreement with that. And having our solar system as that example, we the techniques that we use right now to truly really understand planets, understand habitability don't allow us to do that kind of investigation. In fact, the astrometry that Gaia is going to give us is going to give us nothing more than this population study. We can't do follow-up on these planets. 
Um, there might be a handball we're lucky enough to be able to make up a technique to do some follow-up, but this is a whole different way of looking at our solar system, and we're using the resources from both ends of the table to really kind of bring them together and understand. understand. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And in fact, I often think about this in terms of inhabited planets versus lifeless planets as well. Um, so for example, I think if we were to discover a planet that had some form of life on it, it would almost seem while still being exotic and alien, somehow more familiar to us than a planet that was completely abiotic. If you think about the, the surface of Mars, for example, it's not a very enigmatic, or it's not a very charismatic environment. It doesn't have that same feeling of, of habitability, of course, of the, the dynamism of life. And I think, um, as you say, having uh, a planetary system that is in a completely different architectural kind of setup to the solar system removes it from being solar system like or earth like um so i couldn't agree with more of that and as hannah said i'd be interested to hear what the listeners say uh about about that as well i was thinking more about a question based on are we focusing too much on m dwarfs oh we are a hundred percent searching and focusing too much on m dwarfs but as i said like this is the technique that we can use to really characterize an atmosphere and an alien atmosphere while unlike the Earth, is still giving us humongous amounts of information about the evolution of planetary systems. One of the things that I think is important about the study of these giant planets that have migrated in, they've destroyed their systems as they've gone in. How is that happening? How often does that happen? And what kind of process is occurring in the atmospheres of these that allows us to really understand the evolution of a planetary system because we exist because that didn't happen. Yeah, and I was going to say, why didn't it happen here, <laughs> importantly? So understanding these planets, these giant planet atmospheres, these M-dwarf Earth-sized planet atmospheres gives us these other puzzle pieces and it really is a giant puzzle piece and we need each of those situations to really understand our solar system as a whole and its presence within the galaxy. I guess it depends what puzzle you're trying to make, because if you're trying to solve the puzzle of our own solar system, or you're just trying to find any interesting things in this, like a life being an interesting thing in the universe, then those are different, you know, you're assembling them in different ways, you're going about the problems differently. So I can understand why, yes, we can go for M dwarfs because they're, they're easy. Perhaps it's a five dimensional yeah. puzzle um, <laughs> that we're talking about here. But Maybe it, puzzle's they, the wrong word, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But in my head, I'm seeing different pieces that fit together in different ways. And they all kind of come up to this sum of the whole. How is our solar system here? How are we here? And how does that fit into the galactic balance or, or universal balance of planetary systems? Yeah, I like the puzzle analogy. Uh, we, we might be filling in one corner of, the, of that puzzle uh, with information about, you know, small M-dwarf potentially rocky planets and another corner of that puzzle you know finding about hot jupiter or cold jupiter atmospheres so i think i think if <laughs> i'm gonna go for an analogy here i think it's a puzzle but we don't have the picture on the back of the box nice that's a perfect analogy because we 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 shouldn't think that we know what the puzzle looks like when it's finished you know 100 percent agree that's a nice one this month Andrew's giving us the news. So what's, what's been happening in the world of exoplanets? 
Well, as always, it's been another exciting month. Um, I guess the big news that's hot off the press is um, that the European Space Agency has selected AERIAL, uh, which stands for the Atmospheric Remote Sensing Exoplanet Large Survey, um, as its next medium-class science mission uh, due to launch in 2028. Um, AERIAL uh, was competing against two other missions, a space plasma physics mission and a high-energy astrophysics mission, um, and was, was selected. So exciting times for exoplanet science. Um, the goal of this one meter telescope, um, which was developed by scientists from 12 countries, uh, is to investigate the atmospheres of several hundred exoplanets in the, quote, Jupiter to Earth mass regime, so all of them, um, using visible and infrared spectroscopy during a four-year nominal campaign out at L2. So this is in the 0.5 to 7.8 micron range. Um, and I'll be looking for warm planets with well-mixed atmospheres to reveal bunk bulk composition and maybe even clues about the planet's formation, which is exactly what we've just been talking about, the importance of understanding planets' atmospheres, how they change, and how they can inform us about, one, how the planet was formed and how it's changed over time. Um, and apparently it would have a reported photometric stability of like 10 to 100 parts per million. So we could get a lot of information um, out of this. Um, so early days yet, um, but I'm sure more news uh, will we'll start checking out about Ariel um, over the coming years. Something to look forward to. Yeah, I think it's launches 2020s, late 2020s. So actually it's, so it's, yeah, it's launching after James Webb. That's the point. Um, so maybe that will mean that it's it'll have a different population of planets to study. Because I do worry that James Webb's going to hoover up all the easy stuff and leave Ariel to, to be searching around in less, uh, in low significance sort of data. But Ah, so you think it might be redundant? I didn't think about the fact that we're picking all the lowest hanging fruit with James Webb and that the Ariel satellite will only be able to do the lowest hanging fruit. Maybe, That's an interesting yeah. point. Maybe Tess is going to give us a humongous horde of planets that we can't do with James Webb. So maybe that's where it really kind too of falls bright, into you mean, place. Or? Is it too bright? Well, is there a brightness limit for James Webb? That means yes. that... There's a... Not really, no, actually. You can always do any planet in any in a at least one mode. Right. Um, but we won't be able to do all of them with James Webb. Exactly. So I yeah. think it, the aerial kind of class of planets really depends on our future detection missions. Like NGTS itself is going to find some great planets that might not be followed up in time and, and those kinds of things so i think it's the future planets it's not the ones that we currently know of that are going to be really the the targets for this s will find all of the easy stuff though like it's all sky and it all yes but james Webb won't be able to follow up every single yeah. one of them so yeah, it it ariel might get everything that's left i was just gonna say we often forget that james webb isn't actually an exoplanet mission um or not exclusively so maybe having well, ariel i as mean Given that 25% of the first uh, call for proposals went to exoplanetary science, mm -hmm. we, can, we can be damn sure it's going to do a lot of exoplanetary science. Exactly. Yeah, 25% early release science yeah, um, proposals. Right. Yeah, were 25% GTO time as well. Oh, is that not included? Yeah. yeah so 25% okay, yeah. GTO time, 27% ERS time. We're doing pretty well. So in other mission news, um, on the other side of the, uh, the, the mission development spectrum, uh, the Kepler Space Co Telescope uh, is on its last legs, 
fuel's running very low. Apparently they're running on fumes of hydrazine at the moment. Um, and this is important because since the telescope broke back in 2013 and it became the K2 mission, um, we need those boosters. We need that fuel to help us uh, or help the telescope balance against the solar pressure. So whilst uh, K2's entered its 17th campaign this month out of a predicted 10, so it's done very well, um, the 18th campaign might be the last one. So it seems the, uh, the prognosis for the telescope is on the order of months. Apparently they don't know how much fuel is left, right? They, didn't, they don't know how... They forgot well, to install a dipstick. Essentially. <laughs> I, th- I think they're going on, on some um, kind of connected readings regarding fuel pressure. But then the fuel pressure can be changed by the temperature and whether, you know, it's, the sun is incident on it. There's, there's a lot of errors, apparently, because they didn't think they'd have to know it as precisely as they do. It was only supposed yeah. to last like four years. So um, it's doing very well. And yeah, yeah, we keep expecting to hear that this will be the last campaign, but 18 might be, might be pushing it. So in Discovery News, uh, another crop of planets uh, this month, um, some data from K2 revealed three large, potentially rocky planets around a metal poor M dwarf called K2155. Uh, the two innermost planets in the system have uh, have radii of around 1.4 and 1.3 si- uh, times the uh, the size of the Earth, uh, and are on short two and a half and seven day periods. While the outer planet is a 2.6 Earth radii warm sub Neptune on a 24 day period. Um, so the system is estimated to be like 850 million years old, located relatively nearby, and also bright enough to allow for a JWS2 follow up atmospheric characterization study. So cool stuff. Uh, so some more data from K2 revealed uh, three large, potentially rocky planets around a metal poor M dwarf called K2155. Uh, the three worlds of uh, 1.5, 1.95 and 1.64 Earth radii, respectively, on quite short periods, uh, as most of the K2 planets are. Um, the outermost of which um, orbits in around 40 days. Uh, this is at or near the old uh, habitable zone limit. However, because it's tidally locked, um, uh, well, because all three planets are tidally locked and the outer planet itself has an installation nearly 1.7 times that of the present day Earth, I'd probably suggest that it's, um, it's, it's, it negates that. Um, these worlds are, are mostly interesting in that they fall in that interesting period regime in which uh, photo evaporation could uh, produce either stripped rocky husks or maybe even you know uh, atmospheres of, of, of thick gases. And we'd need more data about that uh, to be sure. Um, also in Discovery, back in uh, December, you may remember that astronomers teamed up with a Google Brain Team researchers to develop uh, convolutional neural network pipelines to discover exoplanets from Kepler light curves. Well, that open source code is now available. Uh, it's on GitHub, and I can post it on our website afterwards. Um, now, this the code was initially tested on 700 stars, and you may re- remember that it revealed the existence of two new planets. Uh, Kepler I and Kepler ATG, um, which I believe we we covered in a recent news segment. So if you want to play with that code, um, go go and check it out. It's uh, it's really cool, and there's a good write up about it as well. So uh, in the world of exoplanet characterization this month. Um, A big step forward in the first laboratory simulations of exoplanet atmospheric chemistry was carried out by Johns Hopkins planetary scientists this month uh, to reveal the formation processes of photochemical hazes under varying conditions and atmospheric compositions. This is a really cool study. Um, The experiments themselves revealed a number of surprising chemical pathways for haze production um, and found that water dominant atmospheres favour haze formation the most. 
these results will be very useful for folding into our interpretation of exoplanet atmospheres from JWST, of course, and also for incorporating into climate models to get a better idea about um, what these atmospheres are doing. Uh, in other news, the whole Proxima b habitability seesaw gets another push as significant flaring from the host star Proxima Sen um, of a thousand times the background emission was reported from Elmer and Acker observations recently. Um, so while this is important for habitability, as it always tends to be framed like that, um, because these, these events could essentially evaporate oceans and sterilize land surfaces, the important finding um, actually helps us to to characterize the architecture of the system itself by explaining some of the excess uh, emission that was assumed to be down to maybe a, a dust belt and, and doesn't require uh, us to imagine a dust belt being there anymore. So another step forward in understanding how that system is built at least. Um, and finally, uh, regular listeners may remember the slight furore that resulted from the discovery or the kind of leaked announcement of an exomoon candidate, uh, Kepler-1625bi, that was last year. Well, uh, an ESA, ESA's project scientist, Renee Heller, uh, from the Max Planck Institute of uh, Solar System Research, attempted to constrain the physical parameters of this potential moon, I should note, it's not being confirmed yet, um, using dynamical modelling. Uh, and he looked at how moons are formed in our solar system to tr try and provide like kind of a benchmark. Um, so the radius of the host planet, as we discussed last time, suggests that it could be anything from a massive Saturn-type planet to, you know, a brown dwarf. Uh, or maybe even a very low mass star of like 0 0.1 uh, times the mass of the sun. Um, so given the total mass of the system, Re uh, Heller explored the possible configurations that uh, a moon could take. Um, and he found that a Neptune-sized moon around a high mass brown dwarf or a low mass star would be the most consistent with how, um, with how satellites and... Um, how satellites are built in the solar system anyway. But the formation of, of, of such a, a configuration would still be a, a mystery. So um, lots, more, lots more info to come uh, on Kepler-1625bi, I hope. Um, and that's about it for the news. That's another one that might be solved by Gaia, because there's, some, there's a lot of uncertainty about how big the star is. And if the star turns out to be a lot smaller than it's thought, it's a lot harder to form a moon, I think. But yeah, that's something that would be interesting to see. I might... When Gaia comes out, I might search search that star and see what see how big it is. There we go. Another another few pieces of the puzzle um, coming in from the other side of the box. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there's lots more lots more news being announced that I probably missed because there's some big conferences going on. Um, LPSC going on in the in the woodlands in Texas at the moment. That's the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, um, as well as the UK Exoplanet Meeting, which uh, Hannah and he are reporting from right now and can't tell us anything because I see all the results are embargoed. But no doubt, lots, lots more exciting things to come in the, in the next couple of months. So, Jane, you're adopting our planet to our Exocast family. Which planet have you selected and why? Okay, so uh, I've picked one that's near and dear to my heart because it's actually one that I found. Um, and this is WTS-2b, which stands for the WIFCAM Transit Survey 2b. So it's the second one that we found. So it's, it's a hot Jupiter, um, and it's... Uh, it orbits a, a, a K-dwarf, so it's a bit smaller than the sun. Um, and what's interesting about it is that it orbits um, just slightly more than a day. It's uh, 24 hours and 48 minutes for its period. Um, <clears throat> and what that means is it's actually so close to its host star that it's only uh, 1.5 times away from the distance at which the gravitational pull of its star would be so great that it would actually start to rip the planet apart by its tidal forces. Um, and so one might ask, like, well, how, 
normal is it for that to find a planet that's like that? And the answer is it's not normal. <laughs> um, and so we know we know that hot Jupiters can't form that close to their stars. It's, it's the environment there is too hot. So they form further out and they migrate inwards. And so the question for this planet is, is it still on that final phase of its migration path? And are we actually seeing it in the very last few tens of millions of years of its, of its lifetime? Or is it going to disappear? Um, you know, not in the not so distant future in astronomical terms. Yeah. Um, and you can actually, the way that we determine that is actually by uh, looking at the structure, the internal structure of the star. So what's, how the sort of star is layered uh, inside. And that determines how much uh, tidal force is actually uh, putting on the planet. Um, and so, yeah, we, we looked at this one and we thought it was a bit strange that the very first one we found was maybe in this very special transient phase of its life at the very end. Um, and so we, we did some calculations where we could actually, you know, could we see this planet actually spiraling in? Like, could we measure that decay? Um, and so you would do this by looking at its transit and then measuring how much earlier its transit arrived every orbital period. And that would be an indication that if it became earlier that you would see it spiraling in. And we, we worked out that if we, uh, if we could time this to an accuracy of about five seconds, that we'd have to wait um, about 15 years to, to actually see uh, a, about a 17 second uh, change in its, uh, in its transit arrival time. Um, however, the important thing is, is that you need a super precise measurement of the orbital period today. Um, and not many exoplanets actually have that measurement. And so it might be that we need to go back and measure them all very precisely now so that when we wait 10 years, we can actually then start to see if some of them are spiraling in. I suppose the problem here is that you need that really precise measurement on the one. You can't use every other transit to average it because in those next transits, you're expecting it to have shifted slightly. Yeah. So each individual measurement has to be really precise. Yeah. I so guess over them. the course of a few months, you can average it and then average it after 10 years, right? There's, yeah. there's no reason I think that, that would it wouldn't have changed. lengthen your baseline a bit, but yeah. yeah. It wouldn't have changed enough to give you differences over like to how orbits. precise you have to be on that timing. Mm. If, it, it, if it only it decays by 17 seconds in 15 years, then taking yeah, three, so. three nights in a row yeah. is going to have decayed by nanoseconds yeah. and right. you won't really care. The, the nice thing about this is that if you can measure that decay, then you can actually feed it back and say, this is what the internal structure of the star is. So it's actually a way that exoplanets for once are informing us about their host star rather than the other way around. Brilliant. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Thank you very much. A good planet to add to our family. Yeah, really cool. And thanks for, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here. So that's Thank been very me. enlightening. Um, and we will certainly be talking about high res data whenever it comes up in our international news desk. Yeah, watch this space. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Jake. So thank you everybody for joining us for another installment of Exocast. We will be returning next month with some more exciting exoplanet topics and of course again another shambles of the exoplanet news. We will also be joined in the virtual Exocast studio by another guest so you can be surprised by who that will be next month. Until then, you can check out all of our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast, and like us on Facebook. And remember, keep using the exoplanet, exocast, exo everything hashtag, and drown out that K-pop group. <laughs> Until next time, everybody. See ya. Bye-bye. Exocast.
I'll have you know I'm doing next month's news, so I'll cover the next three months. Oh, God. (laughs) Maybe I'll... I can't even got it wrong again. Next month, next month, I'll be like, and the four new hat planets were discovered. (laughs) Hat 51. We have to include it every time now. 